We'll now have a dialogue session with Minister Chan Chun Singh, Minister for Trade and Industry. May we please invite Minister Chan on stage for his opening remarks. Excellencies, ladies and gentlemen, a very good afternoon to all of you. Thank you for this invitation to share my thoughts with you at the final session of IPS Singapore Perspective Seminar 2020. This year's topic is politics. In many places, this is almost a dirty word. Often associated with power contests for one's personal benefit. Or worse, being associated with corruption. Hence, not surprisingly, in many of these places, many of the most capable and committed have hesitated to come forth into political service. However, politics in Singapore should really be about governance. Governance is fundamentally about improving the lives of our people and allowing them the best opportunity to fulfill their potential and aspirations. So this afternoon, the question before us is, how can we build a political system and culture in Singapore that will keep us going, growing, and glowing? This is so that our people can continue to improve our lives and realize our expectations. But this is not easy. Many other societies are fracturing under the stresses and strains of various forces. For example, the inability of their systems to help enterprises and workers make the necessary adjustments brought about by globalization and technological disruptions. The appeal to the narrow interests of specific groups, sometimes with the help of big data, fracturing the political centre and making difficult the need for balance and compromise. For example, the opportunistic framing of issues and appeals to one nativist instincts rather than encouraging everyone to rise above the individual to consider the collective good, especially for the long term. And there is also political opportunism of both the extreme left and the extreme right to exploit the fears of people in a volatile and uncertain environment. For Singapore, we face another major challenge as an open society where external forces will always penetrate and permeate our society to try to influence our choices and direction. Unlike many other countries, Unlike many other bigger countries, we do not have the geographical, historical, linguistic, or cultural buffers against many of these external forces. So to catalyze today's discussion, I will propose three hypotheses for consideration on how we can remain exceptional amidst these global and local developments. First hypothesis, 
to remain exceptional and keep going, we must have a political DNA that inclines us to constructive solutioning and positive actions beyond rhetoric and debate. So the first hypothesis is this. To remain exceptional and keep going, we must have a political DNA that inclines us to constructive solutioning and positive actions beyond rhetoric and debate. Some define democracy too narrowly as a contention and strife among opposing and competing ideologies. Indeed, in many parts of the world, this is a popular definition. Others suggest that the mark of success is about the quantity of different voices and representations in the legislature or society. I think these definitions are inadequate. Beyond plurality, any functioning political system must have reasoned debate based on facts that lead to concrete actions and plans to better the lives of our people. I believe Suikiet spoke to you this morning on this topic. What distinguishes us in Singapore is the second part of the sentence, that beyond reasoned debate based on facts, we need concrete plans and actions to better the lives of our people. And this is the essence of SG Together. Today, in this digital age of fake news and alternative reality, this simple task has never been harder. Beyond plurality, there must be mechanisms to allow the diversity of ideas and the divergence of perspectives to finally lead to convergence for action. This is the true test of democracy in action. Today, in many societies and democracies, we indeed see plurality and diversity in debate. But we have yet to see many societies where all this lead to convergence in action. Instead, increasingly we see compromises and consideration for the broader societal interests giving way to narrow sectoral interests. The result being that the, long, the longer-term interests of the future generations are often sacrificed. It is as if politics is only for the me, the here and now. That the future voter is absent and mostly ignored. As though in Britain, the US, France and Singapore for that matter, is as if that all countries exist only for the here and now and not trying to be here forever. We, especially amongst the younger audience, will really have to ask ourselves this. What sort of politics we want in Singapore, especially if Singapore is to be around forever? not just for the next four to five years. Hypothesis number two. To remain exceptional and keep growing, we will need to have the gumption to evolve our political system to stay relevant with the needs of time.
to remain exceptional and keep Singapore growing, we will need to have the gumption to evolve our political system to stay relevant with the needs of the time. Now, this is a very difficult task. Evolution and change of any political system can be easily reduced to accusations such as gerrymandering to the advantage of the incumbent. But the lack of evolution in any system almost inevitably leads to revolution. The system ossifies and collapses. No political system is perfect. Certainly, no political system is perfect for all times. For that matter, no system is perfect, and no system is perfect, appropriate, and relevant for all the times unless it evolves. Functioning political systems are always works in progress. The structures, rules, and organization must be living mechanisms to respond to the needs of the times. So in the Singapore context, be the GRC system, elected presidency, or POFMA, we all have a responsibility to ask ourselves how to evolve our systems to anticipate and preempt problems, even when it is politically inconvenient and politically not expedient. We have seen examples in other countries where political systems become outdated, unable to represent the aspirations of their people and unable to deliver the results for the current generation, never mind safeguarding the interests of the future generations. Can Singapore avoid this fate? Can maturity, in our case, not be a prelude to ossification, decrepitude, and finally collapse? I will pose it that the answer to these questions are as important as who we choose to lead us within the existing system. Hypothesis number three. To remain exceptional and keep glowing, beyond culture and structure, the final piece must be the ethos of political leadership. How do we inspire and bring forth teams of people who are capable, committed, and with conviction. People who will uphold the values and be prepared to make bold, difficult, but necessary decisions. People with the vision and ability to anticipate challenges, and more importantly, to take them on ahead of time. People with the gumption to lead, and not just, quote-unquote, to see where everyone is running and then sprinting ahead of them and for good measure shout, follow me. That means we need good and real political leaders and not just politicians for the short haul. We have been lucky over the last six decades, but maintaining the right ethos of political service will never be easy, especially in times of peace and abundance. 
we can all be easily lulled into complacency, thinking that all will be well. Or we think that someone else can and should do the job. Or us, why should it be me to undertake this thankless task? But this issue goes beyond political leadership. It actually applies to leadership at all levels of our society. All of us present in this room, all of us, are leaders in our respective circles of influence. All of us will have the responsibility to be part of the solution, part of the effort to seek those solutions if we are not part of the problem, as the saying goes. And this, again, goes back to where Swicket left off this morning on Singapore Together. We all see ourselves as fellow Singaporeans with the same shared responsibility to seek solutions for the challenges that we face, anticipate the challenges that we face, and put in place system, structures, organisations, culture, ahead of time to preempt those challenges. So on that note, let me pause and hear your thoughts for us to continue the discussion. True political service requires leadership and stewardship for this generation and for the future generations. The emphasis is on service and not politics. May we all work together as one united team to keep Singapore going, growing and glowing. Thank you very much. Thank you, Minister, for the speech and providing a framework for discussion. Um, if you are wondering why you are sitting on high chair, um, maybe in politics you have to be on high ground. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Minister, in your speech, you identified some trends in societies and in the three hypotheses, you raised many interesting questions. But actually, as um, a 4G leader who comes to a, this IPS session, we are expecting uh, some answers from you. We know for Singapore to continue to be exceptional, there's a lot of what we must, what we must do. We have heard a lot about um, that, what Singapore must be. Um, the principles and philosophies we know, we understand. But the question is really that in this age and time, how to? So may I start with um, asking you two questions. Um, you mentioned that um, political system needs to evolve in response to needs of time. What do you think is the needs of time now? What do you have in mind or what is your vision of an evolved political um, system which is um, not only what 4G leaders are thinking but will be welcomed by 4G or 5G population? Sorry, you had two questions. So the yeah, first okay. one? The, the, the second one is on political leadership. Um, we have always been told about the importance of strong political leadership in Singapore. Um, yet, on the other hand, uh, we are also told that it's getting um, much more difficult now for um, PAP um, to attract good people into politics, um, as people have got a lot more better choices than doing this thankless job. Um, how do you think this will impact on um, the quality of 
our leadership, political leadership, um, quality of the cabinet. Can it still be strong while we, we need a strong leadership? And then how would the relationship with people evolve when the cabinet, in fact, may not be as strong? Okay, maybe let me deal with the first question. Uh, how do we evolve with the times? I think there are three dimensions that personally I would like to see the evolution of our own political system and culture. The first has to do with our own internal discussion and debate. The second has to do with the external forces that we are having to contend with. And the third has to do with the future. Now let me start with the first. Increasingly, I think we have a more educated population and in the capacity to absorb and understand the issues facing us has correspondingly increased. It has always been my own personal desire that we have more in-depth discussion with our own people on the challenges facing us. I always lament that while, we, while our education system is very well structured, we top our PISA scores and we do very well from the foundational subjects. But I always feel that we lack in-depth discussions with our own people on the challenges facing us. And personally, this was the reason why, ever since I came into politics, I started these monthly sessions with my own people every month. Closed-door sessions where only Singaporeans attend, where we can share with Singaporeans what are the challenges facing us, what are the choices that we have, what are the trade-offs that we have to consider. Because my aim is not that we tell Singaporeans this is the solution and this is the answer to our problems. The challenges will evolve. It is more important for fellow Singaporeans to understand the considerations behind the answer than the answer itself. So that my which is that as time goes by, as the circumstances change, we must also be able to evolve our solutioning. There is no, there's no one problem where we can ever say that this is the answer and this answer will be eternally correct, true, relevant. So that is my own aim. A question is, how do we do this at scale? How do we do this at scale? Many of the issues confronting us from security to economics and social may not be so easily to be discussed in open sessions uh, with other people beyond the Singaporeans. So this has been something that I've been grappling with for the last many years. How to scale up this level of in-depth discussions with fellow Singaporeans. Uh, many people have told me that they enjoyed the sessions that they have with me. They asked whether I could YouTube, you know, record the thing, put it on YouTube. I've always hesitated to do that because first, I respect the, the privacy of those people who turn up and for them to ask frank and difficult questions. But more importantly, it's not just about watching a YouTube. Very often, I think Singaporeans buy into the answers because they have walked through the solutioning process themselves. They come to understand why we choose certain causes of action and not others because they have gone through that thinking process. So this is my first wish. My second wish of to seeing how we evolve our system is this. The more successful we are in Singapore, sometimes we become very inward-looking. 
we start to talk about all the trade-off and balances that we have to be done domestically. And I really worry whether we will lose that consciousness of what is happening to the external world. So I just give a very simple example. Last week, uh, EDB, MTI, we announced uh, we have secured more than 15 billion worth of investment last year, so that in the next few years, there will be a stream of investment coming into the economy, creating good and better jobs for Singaporeans. Then, very soon, we hear feedback and conversation about, oh, why did you choose all these investments? Why must we take in all these in investments? Will it be too much for us to digest, and so on and so forth? Now, these are valid questions, but what belies, what is underneath this set of questions, perhaps, is a lack of appreciation of the external environment that we are operating it is not as if that we have a choice to pick one investment and not another investment. In fact, we didn't get all the investments that we want. We have lost some to our competitors. Our competitors are also not static. They are also doing as much as they can to win those investments over. So that's on the economic side. Likewise, on the geopolitical side, on the defence and security side, there are often very sensitive issues that are more difficult for us to discuss publicly. But how do we have many of these sessions to allow our people a sense of the dynamics behind the scene? I always remember that when democracy was first invented, if you like, in the Greek states, it all started with groups of people coming together to have very in-depth discussion on the options and choices, and then they make informed decisions collectively as a society. The question is, how can we do this at scale going forward. Uh, I, I don't know whether you are familiar with this uh, IT platform called V Taiwan. It's an internet platform that they are trying to do this at scale, whereby they try to hum, try to gather the views of the entire society, but not just to debate, but to bring them to convergence for actions. I watch this with a lot of interest because I've always wondered how can we scale up our discussions with fellow Singaporeans on many of these difficult decisions that we have to make. So that's the debate on the current, discussion on the current, discussion on the external. But there is the third challenge which I find most difficult to grapple with and I don't have a perfect solution. And that is that whenever we make decisions for the country in this generation, it affects us not just, it affects, it just, it just, it doesn't just affect the people in this generation we need to have a perspective of how it affects the future generation. But in almost every society that we come across, the future voter is absent, right? So i give you some examples, uh, two examples. One, I think just now you had a good discussion probably on climate change and how does the future uh, potent for Singapore. Now that is an example whereby decisions taken in this generation cannot be devoid of consideration for the future generation. Another example, I don't know whether Swikit mentioned this um, just now, has to do with the management of our reserves. Our reserves, if it's just to be voted on how to be used for this generation, will certainly have a very different outcome if the future generations also have a voice on how they see these uh, reserves being used or being accumulated. So these are issues which cuts across different generations and we need to find a mechanism whereby 
our generation make decisions not just for the sole purview of taking care of this generation. We have the good fortune that our forefathers have the, have the kind of values to leave us with what we have today. Not many countries would have a society whereby today when we go to Changi Airport, the airport was literally built by the previous generation with their resources and left to us. Whereas in many other countries, you go to an airport or big infrastructure projects, it will inevitably be by borrowing uh, from the, or taxation from the current generation. Very few societies have this privilege whereby that generation will say that I take care of my own generation and let me leave behind something for the next generation so that they can have a better time. The question is, going forward, as our society becomes older, where the pressures on fiscal, the fiscal pressures becomes tougher, will we be able to continue to maintain this ethos and culture in our society? Will we always, in every generation, say that when we make a decision, it's not just for this generation, but with a view to the next generation? This could be on climate change mitigation, it could be on fiscal reserves, it could even be on the type of jobs that we want to create in Singapore. As I used the example last week, the jobs that we create is not just for this generation, but also for the next generation. So these are my three wish lists to find a way where we can evolve our political system to be much sharper in our considerations of today's challenges, our external environment, and our future generations. Now, on your second question, you mentioned about uh, difficulty to attract good people. Uh, first, let me caveat this. I don't want it to sound as if like only this generation have problems trying to attract people into political service. In fact, the challenges faced by the previous generations are no less uh, challenging. In fact, some would argue that the 1960s generation, they literally have to face life and death struggles. Because in the 1950s and 1960s, the security situation was much more volatile. Some people literally get bumped off because of their own political beliefs. So every generation will have to navigate this and find good people to come forth and serve. When I say good, I don't just mean intellectually good, but most importantly, with the right values and with the right teamwork. Running a country can never be done by any single man, no matter, or woman for that matter, no matter how good he or she may be. So the first order of business is how do you get people with the right values in? And to the best of our effort, we may still get it wrong, and sometimes people come in and they change. Now, these are all the risks of selecting people to come forth and encouraging them to come forth to serve. But the second part is that once they are in, how do we gel them into a coherent team, that they do not love themselves more than they love the country. And I think those are the critical challenges. As to how, do, how does, it, does it make a difference to how the cabinet relates to the public? No, I don't think so. How the cabinet, the executive, the legislature relates to the public, I don't think it will change that fundamentally because I think what we have neatly settled or at least been growing in that direction is that for in our system every member of parliament 
regardless of which party you are, you are expected to keep a very close pace, a close touch with the ground. We don't run a system like some other countries whereby some of the executive members are not members of parliament. That means they don't have responsibilities on the ground. Those countries with those systems, they have some pluses, but they have also a lot of minuses. Some pluses is that their ministers will be able to focus on what they call the national duties, and then they leave the MPs to manage the ground. But the minus of those political systems is that then you have a divide between what the ministers, the cabinet think versus what the ground feel. But in Singapore, our system requires those two duties to be fused into one. It also has its pluses and minuses. The pluses is that, unlike the rest, we have a better feel of the ground issues and concerns because every one of us have to run our own constituencies. Well, you can argue that the minus is that it makes it very challenging for the same person to do the two at the same time. So, for example, if you happen to be the minister, uh, foreign ministers, you are expected to run around, travel around the world, and make sure that you secure and defend our interests there. Then how do you do that and balance that with the need to take care of your own constituents? Because I don't think the expectations will be that just because you are the Minister of Foreign Affairs, people will give you a discount in the expectations locally. So there are pluses and minuses in either system, but the strength of our system must be that our leaders must always keep their feet firmly planted on the ground, keep their ears close to the ground to understand what are the fears, concerns and aspirations of our people. At the same time, when it comes to difficult decisions to have the trust with our people to share with them the challenges and then to take the difficult decisions collectively. So you're not finding it more difficult to get people, good people now? Every generation will have its challenge. I, that's why I don't want to say that this generation is uh, more difficult than the rest. The challenges that we are up against are quite well known. Uh, I have shared this, I think, in IPS previously before as well. When times are good, things are all right, people will ask, why me? Right? I have a career outside, why me? Uh, and today, the scrutiny, the pressures from the internet on the individual and on the family has increased. And that may deter some more people from coming forth. I think we have to be realistic with that. I myself have been involved in the search over all these years to find good people in. And I would admit that the reasons that they give for not wanting to step forth into political service are some of those that I've shared. The intense scrutiny by the public, the social media, and so forth. But I think the harder the times, perhaps it is also um, useful to know that finally those who come forward, they are really prepared to put aside their own personal interests and maybe to some extent their family's interests in service of the country. In fact, in the toughest of times, we find it easier to select people. I will be frank to say that in 2011, after 2011, it was perhaps the toughest of times, but it was also the time where many people 
step forward. But on the other hand, when times are good, <laughs> there are many people who want to step forward and you really have to <laughs> be very careful who you choose, right? Because political service is not... We don't need fair weather candidates that are here just because the times are relatively good. We need people who are here, who are prepared to stay the course, win the trust of our people, have make tough decisions and carry them forward. Okay. Um, so shall I open it to the floor? Oh, there are questions. Yes, Paul. Sorry, Paul, we can't hear you. Good afternoon, Minister. Yeah, okay, thanks. Yes, Paul. Yeah, uh, thanks for... I, I've attended some of your sessions and they're really good. <laughs> um, Thank you for the compliment. By the way, <laughs> Paul was one of those who attended what we call the informal policy discussions. Um, some time ago. Some time ago. You haven't been coming recently. <laughs> I, I, stopped get, <laughs> I stopped getting the mailers. <laughs> you should tell your guys to keep mailing me. <clears throat> Any, anyway, my question is, um, is actually a kind of a historical one and a contemporary one. Uh, the Indonesian security minister, chief security minister, who is probably known to you, um, has said that they're going to revive their Truth and Reconciliation Commission regarding the 1965 uh, massacres that took place in Indonesia. So my question is um, whether there's any chance at all that there will be a similar commission looking at the, the, the Operation Cold Store in uh, 1963. And before you ask me what's the point of the question, the, the, the point of the question is that um, uh, Dr. Lim Hock Siu was a very good family friend of uh, my parents, and I think uh, his family deserves to have a hearing. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Um, so we'll take a few questions together. Maybe this side? Hi, Minister. My name is Adriel. I'm from Yale and Yes College. Um, I'd like to ask about the changing role of the People's Association, especially in a time when the concept of communities is changing and moving away from geographical-based ones and where youth are not as involved in the communities or not spending as much time at home or in their neighbourhoods. And um, secondly, I want to push back on your point about how we can only have in-depth discussions with Singaporeans. Coming from a school which um, is about 50% international students, I benefit a lot from the perspectives of what my international friends have. Um, they remind me a lot of what I would take for granted in Singapore on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, I think it was also you who shared in Parliament that Team Singapore is not just Singaporeans, but also one that encompasses PRs and the foreign workforce that work together for, for Singapore. Thank you. Uh, I'll share more. Sorry, we'll take one uh, more. One more? Yeah. Test, test. Okay. Um, good evening, Minister. Uh, thank you for your time this, today. Um, I'm Aidan. I'm a student from Yale and US College, and I'm also a member of SG Climate Rally. Um, climate change has been a big topic that we've discussed today, uh, and I'm glad for that. I think it's something that me and my peers feel really deep anxiety about. Um, and you mentioned that we want SG to be around forever. I would like that too, but in order for that to happen, we must re reverse the climate emergency that we're seeing today. And so as Minister for Trade and Industry, I wanted to ask how Singapore intends to confront the elephant in the room, which is our large fossil fuel industry that we host, given that we want to be responsible and pull our weight in dealing with the climate crisis as well. Thank you. Okay, thank you for those questions. Uh, so, Paul, um, the first question is, uh, will we have that? I don't know. The rest of the, the society will have to decide. But let me say this. Um, I worked in Indonesia for two years. I think 
At the public forum, I think I won't comment on who's right and who's wrong. But the 1965, or what happened in the 1960s for that matter, there are deep, um, deep implications on the psyche of the Indonesians. And there's a history beyond that even. But I don't think it will be appropriate for us to compare that with Operation what you say, Operation Coastal. I think the Indonesians will be quite offended to hear us comparing that. Because the implications on the society between this and that, I'm not sure it's the same. And I generally, I try not to do this kind of cross-country comparison. Now, uh, today, I hear you, you believe that the family of Mr. Lim Oksil has a story to share, and I don't think today Mr. Lim is unable to share his stories. And then Singaporeans in future, now and in future, will have to judge uh, whether the actions taken were appropriate or not appropriate. So I'll leave it at that. Uh, the second question, uh, let me clarify, it's not that we don't listen to the foreigners, uh, sorry, Adrian, is it? There are many things that we discuss in public, and I think we will benefit a lot from having the foreigners here. But there will be some issues that I will tell you frankly that I will not discuss in the presence of foreigners. Number one, defence and security issues. Number two, uh, foreign affairs and geopolitical issues. Uh, number three, my economic strategy. So I just, I just want to be very frank that it's not a either or. It's not a, it's not like everything we discuss openly or everything we don't discuss openly. Surely we have a lot of, we take a lot of counsel from our foreign friends and foreign fans who are part of the larger Singapore story. Uh, we have a lot of expert panels which we look for beyond our own system, beyond Singapore, to ask them how we are doing. But when it comes to the crux, I think you would agree with me that there are some things that we will not discuss publicly, right? So, I'll give you an example. Uh, a few days ago, I was at a seminar. It was a closed-door seminar. So someone asked me, how many F-35 must you buy? So I said, well, okay, I can give you an answer, but first of all, can I just check that we are all Singaporeans here? <laughs> I mean, I just want to be realistic. So don't get me wrong. It's not that we don't listen to the foreigners and we don't invite. In fact, for many of the discussions, we invite them in order to check our blind spots but we must have a balanced approach. But there are some things that I think, when it comes to the crux of it, we must be very careful. So for example, uh, why should we discuss openly how we run our investment strategies or how we run our reserves and so forth? So I just want to understand. So it's not, don't get me wrong, huh? it's not that we don't listen to. In fact, that is the worst mistake you can make. Then you don't check your own blind spots, right? Okay, so that's easy. Aiden, Aiden, sorry, on climate change. No, on change rule of uh, PA. Sorry, oh, PA. Uh, in fact, you, you raised this topic, which is very good. In fact, the role of the PA, the People's Association, as a community builder, uh, in PA, they ask me, you know, if SCDF is a lifesaver, what's the equivalent term for PA, right? They have all, I've always called them the community builder. And you are right. Community building in Singapore in the past tend to be focused mainly on uh, geographical boundaries because that's how physical communities build. But in today's uh, society, in today's Singapore society, many of those communities go beyond the geographical boundaries. As you have highlighted very well, 
uh, young people today, they come together for causes and many other issues. And we have to reach out to them. That is why in PA today, it is not just talking about the geographical communities. There are also non-geographical communities. And the non-geographical communities include many of the things that you talked about uh, by causes. What are the causes people are passionate about to help the society overcome uh, inequality, uh, underprivileged children, climate change, and so forth. And for the non-geographical communities, the boundary of that has also expanded to even the internet, uh, the netizens, as we say. How do we engage people to come forward beyond geographical boundaries? So today, in the last few years, as PA evolved in our journey, all that has become part and parcel of the things that PA needs to do in order to truly build a Singapore community across and beyond geographical boundaries. So I thank you for asking that. Uh, Aiden, on climate change. Now, yes, we have a big petrochemical industry, but we also have to be realistic. How is our petrochemical industry performing? In fact, this is one of the things that when we went to the Paris uh, Treaty discussions, for a small country like us, we felt very much done in. Because of the size of our GDP population, geographical area, we have that much quota. Our pet chem industry is one of the most efficient, one of the cleanest in the whole industry. And you, we benchmark ourselves. If you know the terminology, they will, they will do the first quarter, second quarter, third quarter, and then benchmark. Most of our industries are in the first quarter. But the carbon budget is counted against us rather than the consumer. If we tomorrow we don't produce, so we ask the people in the discussion room, tomorrow if we don't produce, if we don't produce, where would all these same petrochemicals be produced? They will be produced somewhere else in the world. And more likely also to be under conditions which are perhaps more pollutive than the current conditions. But we do have this issue. So notwithstanding that, we take our carbon responsibilities very seriously. Today, when EDB goes out to try to win investment and create jobs for the next generation, we have to take into account not just our land constraint, our manpower constraint, our fiscal constraint, so on and so forth. We also have to take into account the carbon constraint. There are industries that may want to come into Singapore and which we may not be able to even accept them. So i give you an example. Singapore is a data hub. Many internet companies, many digital companies would like to set up their data centers in Singapore. But data centers require huge amount of energy. Huge amount of energy requires huge amount of carbon budget. Are we able to attract those? If we are unable to attract those, what does it mean for our economy, our position as a global hub for the digital services. Now, these are difficult questions that cannot be answered just because we are philosophically wedded to one uh, consideration and not the rest. In fact, in all such difficult decisions, we have to ask ourselves, how do we remain competitive as an economy to attract those investments, create good jobs for our people? How do we fulfill our carbon budget obligations 
not just for this generation, for the next generation. So how are we going to manage our carbon budget? That's why the last year during the Energy Week, I spent a lot of time talking about this. I said that if water has been the story for the last 50 years, energy will be the story for our next 50 years. In the last 50 years, we learned the important lesson to never be held ransom by a sole source. We make sure that we continue to diversify our supply of water so that we can hold our own fate in our own hands. We have done very well in that, from three reservoirs to 17 reservoirs. From having to import most of our water supply to now being able to open up new sources of supply from new water to desalination and so forth. And we continue to explore the technologies for us to do better. But all this require us to solve the energy puzzle. How do we have sufficient energy supplies for Singapore? And life is fair. In Singapore, we don't have earthquake, we don't have typhoon, but that means that we have no geothermal, we have no wind power and not much. The only thing that we have is solar. However, 80% of the time in Singapore, the skies are overcast. The efficiency of the solar panels when they are working at the current technology level is about 20 to 25% for the best of class. So what can we do to unlock the energy constraint or rather the carbon constraint for the next 50 years so that we can continue to attract the industries, create good jobs for our people and yet at the same time manage our future carbon budget? There are many things that we can do and I always share with the audience that for us, Climate change carbon budget is not about 50, 100 years later where the seawater starts rising. For us, it's a here and now challenge. If we cannot manage that, we can't even attract the industries in to create the jobs for the next generation. But there are many things that we can do. Number one, think of how we can diversify our energy sources. So we have gone from oil and gas to LNG, which is one of the cleanest uh, fossil fuel. Number two, we can significantly try to improve our solar panel coverage. In fact, I think by the end of this year, if I'm not wrong, Kunian will know, we have one in every two HDB flat with at least some solar panel, and we will try to scale as much as we can. Right? So those are what I call uh, supply. But we need to manage the demand as well. I always ask ourselves how we can reduce significantly the energy consumption for cooling needs. One third of our energy consumption goes to cooling needs for the residential and commercial. You look at this room. Actually, it's a very sad room. Why? You look at the aircon for this room. We aircon the whole place, but actually, we only need to aircon two meters from the floor. Now, there's a huge amount of energy that can be saved if we design our buildings and our rooms properly. And that goes from the macro urban design to the precinct design to the materials use. So we are going to, that's why during the Energy Week, we have set off a grand challenge to, for Singaporeans to come up with ideas on how we can reduce our energy consumption in order for us to release the constraint for us to still have our fair share of industries and so forth. Now, finally, your question is that, are we thinking of a post-fossil fuel future? Yes, we are. Because we know where the trend of the world is going. Right? We are just one small part on the global economy. Many of the big companies, be it ExxonMobil, be it Shell, and so forth, they are all thinking of a 
future beyond fossil fuels. How fast we can get there? It all depends on how fast we are able to adopt those technologies. But are we thinking about it? Yes, certainly. But when the time comes, it will mean that our economic structures will fundamentally be quite different. It means that the type of jobs that we can create for our own people will be quite different. And all this will not be able to be done overnight because as you shift the industry structure, we must have a care about the jobs that are being displaced. And these are jobs that many of our people are working in. So yes, we are looking at that and we are thinking of how to make sure that we insulate ourselves against all these difficult problems that we come and confront us. But we can all do something to unlock the energy and carbon puzzle that confronting us today. Okay? Okay, we're happy to take. Hi, Minister Chan. Uh, my name is Walid and I'm from NTU. I am heartened by your call for us to have more gumption to evolve the political system. So in the spirit of providing constructive suggestions beyond rhetoric and debate, I would like to run by two suggestions with you to evolve the political system. Firstly, is it possible for us to have an independent electoral boundaries review committee, one that is not under the purview of the Prime Minister's office and not chaired by the Secretary to the Prime Minister? The second one is uh, about the GRCs. Can we have a reduction in the size of GRCs to a maximum of, of a two-person GRC? Because if the motivation, if the intention is minority representation, we do not need beyond two people in a particular GRC. Thank you. Okay. okay. Any questions from this side? Professor Ko. I'm Ko Tai An from NTU, Center for Liberal Arts and Social Sciences. Um, my question moves away from the material to the issue of language and identity. Uh, you mentioned your, one of your themes is evolution and change with regard to current uh, policies. And the language policies were crafted at a time where historical circumstances and other circumstances were different. And I'm, wonder, I'm wondering whether you are thinking about um, bringing them up to date because they contain a lot of con uh, 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 contradictions. One contradiction, um, a consequence of our leaving Malaysia was that English language and our choice of multiracialism was that English language became the linchpin of multiracialism, right? Instead of choosing any of the other languages, we choose one that was already in practice, belonging to no one, therefore can belong to everyone. As a result, national the national language Malay became symbolic. And, a, con and, and, and a, a contradiction here is that bilingualism is very narrowly defined. It's mother tongue and English. And yet, you can't choose Malay if you're not Malay, right, um, as a second language. So bilingualism is not English and Malay. That's one contradiction. Um, we live in a majority uh, we live in a, a, a neighborhood which is largely Malay, and we have a large Malay minority. So why is not this choice available now? Okay, right. The next contradiction is, this is a majority Chinese population, and it was decided that Mandarin is our mother tongue. The reality is Mandarin is 
that which was used by the Chinese educated in the Chinese educated system. For many people, their real mother tongue is really their dialects. To promote Mandarin, dialects were suppressed, repressed, even punished. Right? I know uh, uh, TV was punished, fine for using dialect in one of its plays. Right? Okay. And the result is a repression, a suppression, a psychic depression right, of people who spoke dialect and for the younger generation, a sense of cultural loss. Because with dialect came folklore, it came literary references. Hokkien and Cantonese are not minor languages. Uh, one is a major language in Taiwan, the other one is in Cantonese, uh, in Hong Kong, right? So they are not, as it were, inferior in terms of culture, you know, too, right? So that's one contradiction, right? So um, the overall, what I'm saying here is that, is, is it time for us to relook at our language policies? Because it is a psychic question. At the moment, it doesn't seem to be an important question. But in times of crisis, when identity politics come in, this could be very important. Thank you. Hello, Dr. Mr. Chang. I'm a Gobing Singh, People's Power Party. Okay, it's quite refreshing that to hear that you actually wanted a deep level debate about policies. I think I welcome that. But um, maybe there's a new 4G leaders who are more open. But uh, as an opponent of PAP, we have been always been chasing PAP ministers for the public debate about policy speed as an advancement HDB, but we face rejection. So I hope that um, in the coming election, um, I should not face such a rejection, all right? And my colleagues over there. Now, <clears throat> before we have, have um, a deep debate of anything, data, Statistics are important. Now, a lot of people mistaken that uh, opposition are opportunists. We do not know our stuff. We do not know policy options. And that is not true. What we lack are data, statistics. Right? And only with that, we can actually do our own analysis and come up with our own policy options. Then we have, have, can have a meaningful debate. I'm an economic student, right from 19... Uh, 1990s, I have difficulties of having raw data that can I can look at and come out with a meaningful thesis. Right? Uh, just now, um, I think um, uh, Dr. Lam and uh, Professor Chan have uh, some conflicts about um, the immigration uh, migrant data, whether it's from UN, uh, United Nations, we got the data for United Nations of the uh, proportion of um, migrants that we comes to Singapore, or we can get it from SINSTATS. It is possible to get from SINSTATS, I believe that. But we have to do a lot of mining, a lot of calculation, deduction, and all that. But in doing so, any assumption that we make in our deduction will actually contaminate the data, and it's not accurate. It can only be an estimate. And it's not very helpful if we are going to talk about deep debate, policy debate about that, right? So I'm, I'm a very open person. I'm always, always a policy person uh, beyond the political rhetorics. So I hope with the POFMA, 
recently, uh, I'm, I'm surprised um, Dr. Paul didn't mention about POFMA that uh, his party faced. Um, there's uh, some contradiction between what the AGC says and what uh, the ministers have said in parliament. Even uh, Heng Shui just uh, DPM Heng, uh, Heng was saying that uh, we don't POFMA people for opinion, but it must be based on facts. Right? But the AGC in the court actually says that interpretation of facts are also under POFMA. So there's a very contradictory statements that comes out what the AGC thinks and what the parliament thinks. So I hope that um, we have uh, some clarity over that. Thank you. Uh, let me start with Walek. Uh, Walek, right? Yeah, yeah. So the EBRC, the Electoral Boundaries Review Committee, they are formed by the civil servants who have knowledge on things like demographics and all that kind of things. Uh, I never doubt their independence. They do their job professionally. They report to the CAPSEC okay, as a formal matter of procedure. Because no matter who does the work, how it's done, you have to report to somebody and present it to be approved and then to be issued, right? So I never doubt the work of the EBRC and I don't think the civil servants will be so unprofessional as to take into account considerations beyond their remit. Uh, as to your second question, I think the Prime Minister have said this before and I'll just repeat here. And the Prime Minister, I think after the last GE, have said that well, he would give instructions to the EBRC to see how we can have uh, smaller GRCs and uh, more SMCs. So I wait for the EBRC's work to be done before we make any comments as to what it is. But that the Prime Minister has gone on record to say that. Um, uh, Prof. Ko, on the language issue, actually you are right, I agree with you. The circumstances which the, we are facing now and then it's quite different. Uh, the external circumstances and the internal circumstances, but there are also some similarities. So let me try to uh, share some of my thoughts on that. You are right, we chose English as the language which is the common for all of us, partly because it is not used by any particular linguistic group as you mentioned. But there's also a very practical reason, and that's our ability to connect to the rest of the world because English is the language of uh, business in the rest of the world for a large part of the world. So there's a very practical reason externally and there's also a very practical reasons domestically. Then the question is, we also have many or multiple policy objectives. On one hand, we want to unite our people. On the other hand, we want to be able to connect with the rest of the world. On the third policy objective is that we all want our children to grow up having some understanding of their roots, which is why the mother tongue came in be it Malay, Chinese, or Tamil, right? So that's a third objective. There's a possible fourth objective, which is that we live in a region whereby Malay or Bahasa, Malayu and Bahasa Indonesia, slightly different, but maybe 80% similar. We live in this world, and we would like to have more of our people having been able to speak the language so that we can connect with this part of the world. All those are valid policy objectives. The question, which is, before us is, then what is a practical way forward? Today, compared to the past, I think I have seen a shift. Today, because of the rise, in rise of China, 
because Chinese has become economically more useful, there are many people taking up Chinese seriously in schools and even beyond schools for economic reasons. So that has changed compared to the past whereby uh, in the 60s and 70s, where before the sharp rise in the Chinese economic heft, people were perhaps not so uh, seized with learning the language. But I think today has changed. So that has a certain natural momentum in it. Then the question is that if we ask our children to learn English and mother tongue, should we also ask them to learn Malay? If you ask me, for those who are capable, I encourage everyone to learn as many languages as you can. But I know how tough it is to master one language, if not two, and definitely more difficult than three. I myself went through this journey. I'm not linguistically the most capable person on earth. In school, I'll be very happy if I can master my English. My family doesn't speak English. For me, until today, people laugh at my English. With a funny twang, I don't speak as Polish as other people. But that's my background, so I try. In my home, we watch Chinese programs. So I think in Chinese and convert them into English. That's why sometimes when the media interview me, they think I'm speaking in Chinese when I'm actually speaking to them in English. <laughs> then my grandmother knew my late grandmother, knew neither English nor Chinese. So she spoke to me in Cantonese throughout. I learned my multiplication table in Cantonese. Today, when I think about mathematical concepts, I think in Cantonese. That's very complicated. But having said that, I think my posture is this. All of us learn English to try to connect ourselves and connect with the world. All of us go learn a mother tongue to the extent that we can to keep our roots and understand where we come from. All of us, to those who are more capable, take a third language, whether is it Bahasa Melayu, Bahasa Indonesia, Japanese, German, French, whatever. If you are, I encourage you to do so. Because you will make the Singaporean much more competitive in the global economy to be able to connect to the rest of the world. And that will be what I do. Will our young people learn dialect? I would say this. I have talked to many of the clans, the Chinese clans. They offer this as part of the weekend activities. And for those children who are able to, I think it's fine for them to do so. But I don't think it will be possible for us to insist that everybody master so many languages. I myself started learning Bahasa Indonesia seriously at the age of 30. It was a struggle. I learned Bahasa Melayu and Bahasa Indonesia when I was in the armed forces because I have to interact with the Indonesian armed forces regularly. I learned both times, one time at NUS going for night classes as well, and inevitably I returned all I learned to the teacher after I finished the course. <laughs> I really only learned the Bahasa Indonesia when I was posted to Jakarta, and I learned it on the streets. I learned it on the streets. But it was never easy for me, because linguistically I'm not the most able person. But I learned it enough for me to be very functional. I could go into a meeting and discuss geopolitics and economics with the Indonesian's counterparts. But if you ask me to go to the supermarket and buy brinjal and vegetable, I am hard-pressed for words. 
so I can be functional. But I know it's not easy because I myself have gone through this and I must not try to impose what I have gone through onto others who might be struggling with one or two languages. So I think the way forward is, for those who are able, let's encourage them, let's give them the chance. But it will be very difficult for us to insist because not everybody is so linguistically talented. And my wife knows a few languages because she's very linguistically talented and I'm just amazed at her. I can barely speak one language well. But, so, but one last thing I want to share about this language is that don't underestimate our younger generation's capacity. And I'd like to share this story. I used to have a classmate in JC that took pride in failing Chinese. He came from one of those schools whereby uh, Chinese is not the, the very popular, just say. <laughs> then he started working, he's a lawyer. Then one day, I found out that he's working as a lawyer in Beijing. So I thought he was practicing international law in English. To my surprise, shock, and I dare not say horror, he was practicing law in Chinese. And he absolutely F9 flung all his Chinese in school. But because he had that foundation, he was able to pick it up very quickly when the circumstances needed. So I think I learned a lesson in that. If we provide our children with a foundation, when the time comes and if there's a need for it, they will be able, much be able to pick it up much faster. So that's my, my, my situation. So that's from my own personal experience. So I, I don't think we can insist, but let's try to encourage our people to know as many languages as possible, whether is it dialects, whether is it other languages. But you know, nowadays, a lot of people learn Korean also. <laughs> because... In PA courses, one of the most popular courses is Korean language. I, I leave it to your own conclusion why Korean is the, such a popular course to learn at this point in time. Uh, when it comes, uh, if I may turn to Ming Sing's question, uh, in fact, uh, why don't you join Paul and come to one of my sessions? <laughs> right? I, I join, just join Paul and come to one of my sessions, right? Then, the, in my sessions, I have a very simple rule, and Paul will attest to this. We say, let's look at the issues objectively. Let's don't politicize issues. Look at it objectively first. Don't politicize issues. Understand what are the challenges, what are the options. Know the difficult choices that we have to make. Make those choices, and most importantly, go out and carry the ground. Now, I think the issue goes beyond data sharing. Actually, Ming Sing, I wasn't sure exactly what you were trying to get us to do, because you say that you wanted raw data. Then you say that you have to do a lot of work with raw data. But if we give raw data, then you will need to do some work with raw data. But if we give you the conclusion, then you might be suspicious as to how we draw the conclusion. So I'm not exactly sure whether you prefer raw data or you prefer processed data. But never mind, we can sort that out as you, depending on what data you want. But let me say this. Data is not the panacea to everything. Beyond just provision of data, there are two or three other important aspects when it comes to this. Number one, all of us have a responsibility to check our confirmation bias. We can have a lot of data, but if we go in, in the work of, I'm quite sure Ming Sing, you will know, you say you are trained as an economist. I'm trained as an economist as well. Um, in fact, I do econometrics. 
If we go in with preconceived ideas on what the data should tell us, and we have a confirmation bias, we will go and interpret it in a way that it is. In fact, recently we have a very simple case whereby the data was available, but people choose to truncate the graph, squanch the thing, and then come up with a different conclusion. Entirely possible. Uh, which is why some people don't respect the statistician very much and always pain me to hear when people laugh at statistician and say that what, there's lies, lies and damn lies in statistics or something like that. Now, it pains me because I come, I'm trained to do statistics, I'm trained to do econometrics and so forth. So it's not just about data. So data is necessary, but we also need to have an inquiring mind and be open to ask what the data tells us and how do we interpret this. So I give a most recent example where it's very current. So before these few weeks, there were a lot of people saying that, okay, why is the employment outcome of the PRs slightly better than the citizens? Now, if your hypothesis is, therefore, Singapore government doesn't care about the citizens, then you will say that, yeah, I see, I show you, see, the data is that the employment outcomes of the PRs is slightly better than the Singaporeans. Now, that would be one interpretation. But surely that's not the only interpretation. The other interpretation is, actually, we have pre-selected the PRs. If the PRs are all unemployed, it will be very difficult for them to get a PR unless they have really strong family ties here. So you can have the same data, but all I'm cautioning is that unless we go in with no preconceived ideas and learn to interpret this, having data alone is insufficient. Then there's a third point. Even if we have the data and interpreted the data, there must be some level of trust. At the end of the day, you can tell people a lot of data. But from my own experience, if people don't trust you as a person, you can give as much data as you want and you will not win over the hearts nor the minds of the person. In fact, for many of the questions that we are confronting with, I don't think it's an issue of the data per se. Of course, data helps. But end of the day, when we go out to confront many of these issues, we have to also have that trust whereby we make use of available data. If I may draw on Paul's experience, Paul came for at least two of my sessions. I think Paul, I, don't re I can't remember the topic, but I remember it was quite a hot topic at that point in time. It's either health, housing, or something like that. I don't have to review all the data to the second decimal point for us to have the discussion, but we have a frame, and even from open sources, we are able to deduce what are the choices and options that we have, right? So, yes, more data certainly help, but I would say it's necessary but insufficient. It also requires us to frame it objectively for us to get the correct conclusions. At the same time, at the end of the day, it is not data alone that will convince our people what are the choices. It is also about the trust that our people have with us. Without that trust, nothing will work very much. In fact, today, if you go onto the internet, whenever the data comes out, there will be the following, uh, cattle, uh, following categories of reaction. There will be one small group, a very small group that says, are you sure your data is correct? That's the first reaction. Then the second group, which is not bad, which is, is this the only way to interpret the data? Which is okay, right? But at the end of the day, how do you win the hearts and minds of the people has to go beyond data. Has to go beyond data. You look back at the, our first and second generation of leaders. I don't think it's just data alone that won them over, but it is because of what they say, 
what they deliver that earns the trust and therefore people go along with them. And it's not just data alone. So that will be my, my uh, sharing with this. Okay. Okay. We have less than three minutes left. I think we'll do the last round of questions. Okay, so a bit of Mintel from UWC again. Um, a bit more of a controversial question this time. Today, especially from the DPM, we've heard on multiple occasions that Singaporeans are given the opportunity to f freely exp express their views in a, in a pluralistic manner. However, compared to, um, say, South Korea or the USA, the opposition seems to have a far less visible platform in terms of, for example, visible protest with for example, LGBT issues, which has been brought up previously today, being constrained to speaker's corner in terms of physical demonstration. Is there a way to ensure that the opposition can not just, can not just speak, but also be heard in a credible manner without the somewhat raucous political style found in other systems? Okay. okay. Uh, the student behind. Sorry, what's your name? I heard, I heard you're from UWC, just that yes. I, later so I can address you by your name rather than... Min So. Okay. Yeah, sorry. Uh, sorry, Ambassador. Can we let the student... He's standing there tush. for quite a long time. Yeah. Good evening, Minister Chan. I'm Ching Hao from Tomasic Junior College. I just want to ask about your long-term vision for Singapore. Being cognizant of global uncertainty, be it politically, socially or economically, where do you see Singapore in the next 20 to 30 years? Okay, thank you. Okay, I understand. Thank you. Uh, I have a question on evolving politics and evolving Singapore. But before that, may I say that I'm proud Singaporean. I don't speak Mandarin, but Tampo Tampo is Sai Hokkien. Very important song to sing. And, <laughs> and can sing the Mandarin song, Peng Yo. It's about friendship. Both versions. So <laughs> and, uh, not, not the Cantonese version. <laughs> but Minister, I, I like your answer about language. You know, and, but I'd like to ask a question about uh, evolving politics, evolving Singapore, and revisiting some of the norms we've been talking about. I was at the St. Gallen Symposium recently, where they say all these issues are double-edged sword, or double-edged knife. But the way to treat it is with gloves. Not kid gloves, but I think you have addressed them very robustly in some of the very sensitive issues. So my question is, when you do use gloves, you will realize that the word glove has a basic word of love, L-O-V-E, but with the three, I'd like to add G, three Gs, government, God, multiracialism, religion is a very big issue nowadays, and the ground, not your high ground only, but the general ground. So where do you think the area which needs the most urgent revisiting? Social cohesion, uh, inequalities, or freedom? Which area do you think in Singapore we need an urgent revisiting so that people can appreciate the need for this cohesive Singapore? Thank you. Sorry, Zainal, you mean revisiting in what sense as in um, revisiting in the sense that people are asking a lot of questions, whether there's enough freedom, you know, the example of you know, BMD or whatever, 
uh, even in terms of social cohesion, are we really, we are making good progress, is it enough? GRC, elected president, so where do we do, re revisit this to make sure that more and more Singaporeans can relate to them? Thank you. Yes. Um, Hi, good afternoon. Yeah. So my name is Ibn Noor. Uh, Let's keep it short. Okay. Uh, so I, I, I would like to uh, thank you very much for pr proposing the three hypotheses. Um, might miss out one hypothesis, uh, which you alluded about en getting engaged with the world. Uh, being exceptional is always in relation to something else. And may I suggest that uh, for us to remain exceptional is for also for us to have enough cultural literacy uh, and stay connected to the region, which is ASEAN, a bit more uh, in, uh, in comparison to China and even the US. Uh, and, 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 and with regards to the question which the lady posed about languages, uh, I think her question is less about taking Malay or Bahasa as a third language. Uh, it's more about the ability for a parent to choose a, a, a non-Chinese language, uh, uh, to choose Bahasa or Malay uh, as a choice, as a second language. Uh, which, which, I, which I appreciate the foresight which, which our government had in 1965 to have Mandarin because China is going to be a big economy. Uh, Indonesia will be the next big economy within the region and giving people the ability to choose uh, Bahasa as a second language might be a possible option. Uh, my, uh, actually, my question is more related to uh, non-partisanship. Uh, will we ever see a Singapore where we do not have parties in parliament. So it's about evolving uh, structure. Uh, and if yes, why? And if no, why? Yep. Which means a parliament with no parties. Okay, the last question for the young man. Uh, hi, Minister. I'm Tristan. I'm from Singapore Polytechnic. Now, I have a, actually have a question about energy. Uh, just for some context, since I was young, I was actually really interested in nuclear energy. And very recently, there's been a novel form of nuclear energy that's called nuclear fusion, and it works on smashing atoms together. Because of the unique physics, there's a guaranteed risk that there will be no meltdown, and it uses hydrogen as fuel, which which we can extract from seawater. So my question is, will Singapore consider investing in fusion energy research? And looking forward, will we consider it as a feasible energy source? Thank you. OK, can I answer the question, not in the order that you asked, but uh, maybe I, then I, I, I round up. Uh, Tristan, the last, I take the last question first. The answer is yes. We'll look at any energy sources available. Right? Uh, <laughs> truth be told that. There are two points I just want to make. Uh, first, we are taking a very close watch on all alternative energy sources. Right? We neither rule anything in or rule anything out, so long as it meets our safety requirement. Right? So will we invest big time into fusion? I think the amount of investment required for fusion still is quite big and quite a lot of the major players around the world are doing this. We may not be able to do this ourselves, but we should certainly keep a lookout on what are the potential for this uh, new form of energy. So don't rule anything out. Don't say yes or no until we understand more about this and we see whether it's commercially viable, whether it meets our security and safety requirements, and then we'll take it one step at a time. So Tristan, that's the part about 
uh, eight, eight news, right? I think I agree with you. Uh, to be exceptional, we cannot just be on the economics, political front. I think we also seek for excellence in terms of the cultural front. Perhaps maybe just to push the argument a bit more, not so much just cultural for its own sake, but our ability to understand the world, our ability to connect with the rest of the world. And that is a very important aspect of our competitive advantage and our value add to the world. In fact, in today's world, the world is fragmenting. People are going into different blocks. People are dividing themselves up rather than integrating themselves. And it's a big concern for Singapore because the last few decades of global prosperity that have uplifted millions from poverty is because we could have integrated the global production processes, supply chains, distribution networks, everything at a global level. But today, the world is at the cups whereby we are in danger of reversing this journey towards greater integration, towards fragmentation. Then the question is, what can Singapore do in this world that may be fragmenting and bifurcating? If we want to create niche value-add propositions to the rest of the world, then we must have this capability to help integrate different parts together. And we can't do that unless we have the cultural quotient, as you seem to suggest, for us to understand and how to bring people together. We don't start from zero. In fact, we do have quite a good reputation on the international circuit for us to bring people together. Because first of all, we are small, we are not threatening, and we seldom have our own vested interests that make us biased towards one or the other. But we genuinely believe in a world whereby it's better for everybody to work together and come together. And we will need to play our part. And we will need to develop real capabilities for us to contribute meaningfully to this conversation. Right? Uh, your question is that whether Singapore will one day have a parliament without parties. Actually, uh, I have the same thought as you, you know. I was also thinking about this question very seriously. You know? in, the, in today's world, how will this system look like and how does it work? Uh, traditionally, traditionally, people have parties because they have a certain frame of party manifesto, party positions, and people ask people to vote along those lines. But it's a very interesting proposition. And I won't laugh or rule it out uh, gently. Because the question is not so much whether we will have a parliament without any parties. The question is more the second order question which I alluded to in one of my hypotheses. Even assuming that we do away with this political party structure where everybody stands on their own as individuals, independents, right, in the respective place. The question is that how do we bring people together for action? So we settle the diversity part, we settle the divergence part. Then the question is, how do we bring about convergence? How do we do that? Now, I don't yet have a final answer to your question because I think these are things that we need to think about very seriously. I, that's why in my hypothesis, I said in today's world, a lot of people focus on the first part, how to generate diversity, how to generate debate. Those are all very good, but the question is, Beyond that, how do we generate convergence, especially for small countries? I used to say, okay, sorry, I'm leaning forward because the camera is blocking me. Maybe you just so I cannot, cannot see. <laughs> okay, so thank you very much. <laughs> I was trying to look at you. Okay, I've always said this, you know, for a small country, we have many choices in front of us. 
To go left is alright, to go right is okay, to go straight is also okay. But let us all go together. Don't end up where one, of, one third go left, one third go right, one third goes straight. Then we are in trouble. After all the debate and discussion, how do we bring people together? So this idea that is quite alluring is that we do away with this politics. Let's run the country technocratically, practically, without all this politicking, but we still need a mechanism to bring people for action. Which then leads in to nicely to the question, the first question, which is about other people's system. I think every country has to decide on the political system and the political culture that they have. I won't want to comment on the political system or culture in South Korea, in uh, Hong Kong and elsewhere. I think that's for them to decide. But likewise, Singaporeans have to decide for ourselves you know, what kind of political culture we want. I think we have seen how political systems in other countries work. There are aspects which we are quite careful not to import to Singapore, but there are also aspects which we thought, yeah, how can we achieve that kind of uh, positive? But we have to be realistic. In every political system, there are pluses and minuses, and it's very difficult to say that let's design a political system where I only have all the pluses and no minuses. And even if we do that, we also have to evolve with the times because the needs change. So I will leave it to the audience and I'll leave it to Singaporeans to decide whether the example in South Korea, uh, what can it teach us and what lessons can we draw from whether is it the South Korean the Taiwanese political system, the Hong Kong political system, and so forth. And I think Singaporeans can draw their own conclusions as to what kind of political system that they want. But I will just add one point because I think in today's world, it's not just about the debate in parliament. In fact, today, the, in today's Singapore, the debate outside parliament is probably even more lively than the debate in parliament. Whether people go into parliament or not, they continue to debate at issues, which is not entirely bad, you know. People are showing an interest, right? But what we want is actually to bring forth more people to discuss, not just some people who feel very passionately about this and keep harping on a certain issue, and then the rest feel as if they have no responsibility towards it. Uh, this is the system in Europe whereby they always have this dilemma. They, what they call the insurgents are always very um, passionate about the issue. But once the insurgent become the incumbent, then the other set of insurgents start to be very passionate about issues. But this is the wrong approach to running a country and governing. Actually, for every issue, we, whether you are insurgent or incumbent, you need to sit down and discuss what are the options available and make those decisions. And that is something that I don't think anyone has found the perfect system yet. Today, the internet, the cyberspace, offer us new challenges, but I will also not underplay the potential for us to tap this platform for us to bring people together. Okay? We know the era of fake news, we know the era of uh, bots, you know, bots that generate things to try to shape opinion. But beyond this, how can we use the new technologies available to bring consensus? That's why I just now I mentioned the V Taiwan example, which I found quite interesting and I wanted to understand more about how it brings consensus about. So not just about the debate. Now, on, uh, maybe I'll touch on Zainer's question before I come back to the final question by the student from Tamasic about long-term vision. Uh, Zainer's question is, uh, which are some of the things that we have to revisit? I don't think it's some. I think there are many things that we constantly have to ask ourselves and revisit. Never, never make the assumption that just because policies are right and appropriate now, that you will always be right and appropriate forevermore. So I can give some examples. Economics. Uh, it is not as if that we have an unchanging economic strategy. 
how we attract investment, what kind of investment that can come into Singapore that can create good jobs, not for this generation, also for the next, but yet at the same time balancing the ability of our people to accept that kind of investment, that kind of economic structure is an ongoing uh, challenge. So we are constantly having to revisit this between amongst the MTI agencies every day because it's not just an economic consideration, it's also a social economic considerations that we have. On the social side, there are many things that we need to ask ourselves with an aging population. And many of our younger generation, up to one third of them, may not get married and form the traditional family structure. Then how do we take care of them as they grow older? Even the typology of our housing estates uh, and policies incentive, we have to think about how to do this uh, going forward. On the racial religion side, it's yet another challenge. Uh, the previous compartmentalizations of different people according to race will increasingly change because there are many more intermarriages. There are also many more marriages between Singaporeans and foreigners. So the complexion of our society will definitely change in the years going out. And if, that is, if all these are going to change, then we have to seriously ask ourselves every step of the way, are our policies still right and relevant? So these are many of the things that we will have to figure out. Yet there are other issues that are perhaps uh, has a longer cycle. Some of the geopolitical forces that we have to contend with, those have a longer cycle. Those may not, need, uh, those may not have us revisiting them in the same frequency, but those require us to keep watch very sensitively on the potential shifts so that we can make sure that we position ourselves in the global geopolitical environment, global supply chain environment, uh, and not lose out in this. So these are ongoing work, and I would say the effort to revisit policies is ongoing for every aspect of our life. And we cannot assume that just because we got certain things right at this point in time, it will always be right. That will be a very, very bad mistake uh, going forward. Now, if I may end off with the last one, on uh, what's my long-term vision. Can I say this? My long-term vision in Singapore is not just the next 20 and 30 years. It's not just the next 20 and 30 years. I grew up in a system, in a part of the system, where I understand that the last 50 over years of our existence has been an aberration in the history of Singapore and the history of this part of the world. If we go back a few hundred years, Singapore has never been independent, and some would argue Singapore has never been allowed to be independent. Never been independent because as a small city-state, without a natural conventional hinterland, it is very difficult to survive. Without those external links for resources, supplies, markets, talent, and so forth. It is very difficult. The last 50 over years, we have to work out a living for ourselves. We have to defend ourselves, take care of our security, we have to earn our keep and not depend on other people's charity. We have to find value add 
so that we entrench ourselves in the global environment. Nobody has sympathy or charity for a small country. In the last 50 years, we have to navigate a domestic environment whereby we all came from different shores. That to have a country regardless of race, language, religion is not the norm. In fact, in many other countries, the national identity has to do with race, language, religion, ancestry, geography, and so forth. That's why I say just now, even until today, we don't have the geographical, cultural, linguistic buffers against many of the global forces impacting us. And amidst all this, having to take care of our security, take care of our own lives and economic survival, and take care of our own cohesion for the last 50 years, nothing has been very natural. Nothing. And I worked my whole life believing this, that if we are careless, if we are not careful, if we are not sensitive to the larger forces in the world, if we take what we have for granted, then very easily we can lose all this and have to start all over again. So I never, never take it as a given that we will arrive at SG100 effortlessly. Never. When I went back to the SAF and talked to them, I asked them, how many of you think that we will celebrate SG100 based on the current trajectory? Many of them put up their hands, and I'm very proud of them. But I reminded them, while you have the confidence, and I'm proud that you have the confidence, never forget why you are still in uniform. The very fact that you are still in uniform tells us that we have many other challenges that require you to be in the uniform. And it's not a job done. It's always a work in progress. Now at MTI, every day, my economic team has to go around to the rest of the world and convince people, local and foreign, to put their investment in Singapore so that we can have good and better jobs for our people, not just for today, but for the future. And we have to do that delicate balance. And you talk to any EDB officers, they grow up very fast. They grow up learning that nobody will owe us a living, that we have to give a value proposition to the rest of the world why they need to do business with us. When it comes to the social issues, we have succeeded on many fronts. But the challenges are ongoing. In the past, we were equally poor. Today, we are unequally rich. The challenges are no less. In the past, everybody feels that they have a chance to rise up to the top. And today, we pride ourselves still that amongst all the societies that we see, Singapore is probably the best place to be born even if we don't come from a privileged background because we have every reason to believe that we can succeed. But that is not to be taken for granted. Every country, as they mature, ossify. They form groups, and after a while, there will be groups 
that ask themselves, why should I continue to support this system if I cannot get ahead in this system? Those are our ongoing challenges. So what's my vision? I only have one simple vision for my entire life work, be it in the SAF, MSF, NTUC, or now MTI. I have one very simple aim. And that is for Singapore to defy the odds of history, to survive and thrive as a small city-state without a natural hinterland, to survive and thrive whereby we may not have a common ancestry, race, language, and religion, that we can define our identity based on a forward-looking set of values of multiculturalism, meritocracy, incorruptibility. That will define a future where the future is in our hands and we are not beholden to others nor held ransom by others. That when others ask us to jump, we don't have to only ask how high, but we can ask why. Is it easy? No, I don't think so. Is it easy? No. My wife asked me, why do you continue to be where you are? Every day you are getting all the brickbats. Your family is getting the brickbats. Your children are getting the brickbats. Why are we still here? And I can tell you, we are still here. I am still here because I want my children and my grandchildren and for many more generations to come to be able to call themselves Singaporeans. That they have the means to be called Singaporeans and they have the gumption to be called Singaporean. The will. That today, we may just be Singaporeans, but one day, there will be a Singapore tribe. That's why for the bicentennial, I like it so much when Indrani proposed the tagline, from Singapore to Singaporeans. There's the double meaning to it. From Singapore, a geographical location, to Singaporean, a people. A people united by a set of values, although we may not be having a common ancestry, race, language, religion. But Singapore to Singaporeans is also about our stewardship to leave behind something better for the next generation. Just as the previous generation have left us with what we have today. That every generation of Singaporeans will not fear because they will start from a higher platform to scale a higher peak. That every generation will lend our shoulders to the next to stand taller and see further. And if we can continue to do that, I worry not, I'm not worried about SG100. I will say that even beyond SG100, we will continue to shine. So what's my vision for Singapore? Defy the odds of history. Show the world how a small city-state without natural resources, without a common ancestry, can come together, value add to the world, contribute to the world, and bring forth people with a common values, common set of values and vision, and not just looking at the past. That is our life's work. You ask Wicked, I think you'll be the same answer.
That's what unites us in this endeavour to make sure that there will be a Singapore that all our children and future generations they can be proud of. very nationalistic note, um, we thank Minister Chan for sharing his perspectives. Can um, I just say us? one last thing? <laughs> Both Suke and me have one wish. We discuss this very often. We share this. The next lap for Singapore is not just dependent on a few of us. All of us in this room have the opportunity and the responsibility in our respective circles to build that Singapore that we want. Not just economically, not just from the defence and security perspective, but also culturally. All of us here present today, you are either family, friend or fan of Singapore. For those who are Singaporeans, you know this place belongs to us all. And because it belongs to us all, we all have a shared responsibility towards ourselves and the future generation. For those who are friends and fans of Singapore, if you believe and you buy in to this vision that we have as a small city-state to defy the odds, then may you also join hands with us to bring forth this Singapore that you can be so proud to call friend or fan. So on that note, thank you very much for having me over. Thank you. To conclude, I think it was Zuraida who defined our greatest political challenge as how can we change and yet remain together. I may have misquoted her, but that was the gist of it. And DPM, said something similar when he was asked the same question and he put it simply, how do you remain together? How do you remain an exceptional city-state, precisely organized, never stop thinking of the future and yet accommodate greater political diversity, plurality, a greater contestation of ideas? I think today we saw part of that answer on display in the second panel this afternoon. Activists, young, working on the ground on various issues, climate change, social change, social problems, and showing how we can change and yet remain together. But the conversation is not over and that is the nature of politics. It remains for me to thank the organizers of this conference. As you might guess, it always takes a village to organize something like this. First, Natalie Pang, I don't know where she is, um, and her team, assisted by Shamil, Zainuddin, and Kwong Lin, I think that was a young woman who introduced, uh, acted as MC. They planned, conceived, and organized this conference. The events team, Ong Sealing and Zuhaid, uh, uh, Zahida, I think they are around somewhere. Uh, the fundraising, because this costs money, um, Hansen, Joanna, and Sermin, and the media, Kiaming, and her team. And of course, all our sponsors listed on the board behind. I'm grateful to all of them. And finally, you, the audience, thank you for being a most attentive audience 
And I'm so glad in particular that so many young people got up to ask questions. I'm sure we will have much occasion for the rest of the year to talk perhaps too incessantly about politics. And so this is not the end, it's just the beginning. So thank you and good night.